Okay, we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. Again, as we continue our series on the letters of Peter. And I'm going to start this morning uh, by talking about uh, something called Kintsugi. And I promise it'll make sense as we make our way through the text. Uh, at least I hope so. So for those who don't know, Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with lacquer. It's usually dusted or mixed with powdered gold, uh, although sometimes they use silver or platinum. Uh, the origins of this technique stretch back to the 15th century when the Japanese shogun Ashikaga Yoshimasa sent a cracked tea bowl to be repaired. But he was unhappy with the result because the repair had severely reduced the beauty of the piece. And he then had craftsmen come up with an alternate method of repair, which would be more aesthetically pleasing. And that's apparently, legend has it, how Kintsugi was born. Uh, as with most Japanese art, uh, it's got some philosophy tied into it. And the primary idea is drawn from the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi, which acknowledges that there is beauty in flawed or imperfect things. It also incorporates the concept of motenai, which is an expression of regret at the full value of something not being put to good use. Uh, basically, Kintsugi treats breakage and repair as part of the history of the object, rather than something to hide or disguise. It, emphasizes the breaking and mending of the object as an important part of its story. And through Kintsugi, the object becomes more beautiful than it was at first, receiving a new and revitalized life rather than being disposed of. So with this in mind, we're going to dive into the text for this morning and see where hints of that show up. Uh, follow along with me, if you will, as we read in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and 
and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And God bless the reading of his word. Okay. So as we begin in verse 13, the word therefore should point us both back at what Peter had already written as well as forward toward what he was about to say. Uh, as one of my theology professors used to say, what's the therefore therefore? In this case, Peter had been including these mostly Gentile congregations into the larger story of God's chosen people, which had previously only been sort of Israel and the Jews. And he had been encouraging them to place their trust in Jesus and their hope in the resurrection as a means of facing difficulty and persecution as it was beginning to rise. He also referenced the Old Testament prophets and their role in the larger story. And, and then he said, therefore, in other words, since all these things are true, here's what to do about it. And what Peter wanted them to do about it was to prepare their minds for action. In the Greek, the word he used is anatsunomi, and it means to gird up. Uh, it's a verb that had to do with the act of tucking in your tunic so that you could do work uh, to keep the tunic from getting in the way of the work that you had to do. Uh, so let's consider that for a minute. Peter wanted these believers to get their minds ready for the work that was ahead, to tuck away the parts that might get in the way of that work. Now he didn't mean questions or doubts necessarily, he meant any part that would put a stop to their actively living like Christ as they endured the suffering that was to come. And a great example of this, I think, is found in the story of the Exodus. No surprise there, right? The Exodus always seems to pop up in all these things. Uh, so when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, was Moses' first response, okay, let's go, right? No. Not even close. Uh, we find that story in Exodus 3. I'm not going to read all of it, but in verse 11, Moses questioned God, saying, Who am I that I should go? And this was just the first of Moses' questions and doubts. He also questioned who he should claim sent him. And then moving into chapter 4, he questioned their willingness to listen and then doubted his own ability to speak well. Each time Moses raised a question or a doubt about doing what God called him to do, God answered him and talked him through it, which shows us that God's not bothered by our questions or our doubts. It's only when Moses basically said no that there was a problem. We see this in Exodus 4.13 when Moses said, send someone else. At which point, God got a little frustrated and then included Aaron in the plan. When we jump back into what Peter was saying to these believers, this is basically the same idea. Peter wasn't saying they couldn't ask 
questions about God or have doubts here and there that they struggled with along the way, but he wanted them to be ready to do what God had called them to do. I have questions and doubts all the time. I'm sure many of you do as well. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we are ready to go and do whatever God calls us to go and do. This might mean praying right when we get up in the morning. It might mean meditating on some passage of scripture. It might mean singing a hymn or a praise song as we go about our day, uh, gathering with other believers to discuss some Bible passage, proclaiming the gospel to people that we know in town or friends or neighbors, things like that. There's a host of ways that this works itself into our daily lives. But the important thing is that it does. That we take the time to actively set our minds toward what God has set before us, whatever that may be. According to Peter, this is directly connected to every believer's hope in the return and revelation of Jesus. And as a result, he wanted to make sure that these believers weren't still engaging in the same old, broken ways of living. Verse 14, he encouraged them not to be conformed to the passions of their old way of life. He called it their former ignorance, which is a really polite way of saying, don't go back to that stupid way of life. And I have to tell myself this sometimes, because sometimes I get tempted to shrug off the work God has called me to and just sort of do things my own way, make choices that benefit me above all. But that isn't Christ-like. That isn't in line with the holy life that I've been called to live. Verse 15 and 16, Peter urged these believers to be holy in all their conduct, to be holy as God is holy. This is a line he pulled straight from Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, still part of that Exodus story where the Lord was speaking to Israel after bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt and calling them to live differently, to look different than the rest of the world. Yet again, Peter was including these Gentiles in the larger story of God's chosen people. But beyond simply including them, he wanted to motivate them to include themselves. He wanted them to take hold of the concept of living holy lives and to lean all the way into it. Which didn't mean they would me wouldn't mess up from time to time. We know that we do. But that they would be sort of stumbling forward, living into God's mercy and grace. How else could we be holy as God is holy? We don't have that power in us. I think Paul addressed this in 2 Corinthians 3, 17-18, writing, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. See, Paul clarified that holiness is a matter of transformation that takes place over time. All we have to do is cooperate with the Holy Spirit. This is where the trouble is, right? 
We don't always want to cooperate. We lack trust in God's plan, so we pull back and we take back control. And we put ourselves back in the driver's seat. We stall the process. But we never catch God off guard. And we never go beyond the Lord's reach. There's never a point at which we have made so drastic a choice or series of choices that the Lord can't bring us back home. Never a time when God can't show us mercy and grace and then continue the work of making us holy. See, that's what confession is all about. In fact, Peter didn't say it outright here, but confession is as much a part of holiness for us as anything else because confession is how we acknowledge that we need the Holy Spirit in order to be holy as God is holy. At this point, Peter again referred to these believers as exiles, Reiterating his previous point that people who are citizens of God's kingdom have a different allegiance and set of values. And in that same sentence, Peter implied that the exile in question was temporary, that it wouldn't last forever, even if it lasted their entire lives. Now, this is a way of looking at the trials they were facing from the eternal perspective. And this should be an encouragement to us, especially in how we view the various things that seem to matter so very much to people in our culture these days. So many people these days, and even many who are Christians, they seem to be so invested in things that are temporary, things that won't last, things that can't last. It makes me wonder. Are we living with a healthy understanding of just how fleeting the things of the world are, including our lives? Do we as a congregation fully grasp that in the next 15 years of this church, we're going to look very different than we do today? Think about it. This congregation was founded in February of 1898. That's 124 years ago. Now that may seem like a really long time, but in the overall story of God's creation, it's almost a blip. None of the people who founded this church are still around. And yet, here we are this morning. Some of us have been here a long time. Some of our members may have even grown up here. We're talking 60, 70, 80 years, but not 124 People who founded this church had to have had an eternal mindset because their effort outlasted them. They couldn't have been living for themselves, not entirely. They had to have been committed to the work of the Holy Spirit and the ongoing mission of the gospel, a mission that began well before them and has lasted beyond their lifetimes. If we are who we say we are, then we share in this eternal perspective. And we share in that commitment to the Holy Spirit and the ongoing mission of the gospel. These are things the world couldn't care less about, right? And Peter addressed that as well, calling the cares of the world 
feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And the Greek word he used right there is mateos, and it means vain, useless, or unproductive. It's an adjective derived from the word matein, which means without purpose or ground. In other words, Peter was saying that these Gentile believers were born and raised into a way of understanding the world that was without purpose. They inherited this purposeless worldview from their parents and their culture, and they may not have even known it. It can be subtle. Humans tend to accept the sort of big picture that we're big picture that we're given when we are young without really questioning it, most of us. And we typically accept and internalize whatever identity and value system we are born into. In our country, we are told that this is the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that we value liberty and justice for all. And the problem is that far too many Christians identify more with these ideals than with what Scripture says. They've exchanged their identity as exiles for a cultural identity that may be good, but ultimately lacks the unselfish nature of Jesus. Or maybe they've tried to sort of mix the two together, but that's like oil and water. Whatever the case, we have to take these things into consideration. We have to take a close look at the worldview we were given growing up, and we have to be able to discard whatever needs discarding, to filter it all through the Holy Spirit and be willing to let go of some things. As an oversimplified example, when I was little, my church used the King James Version exclusively. Uh, I can still remember the day I heard about the New International Version, the NIV. I was super young, but I knew our family values. I knew our identity as Southern Baptists. And I knew that that meant the NIV was blasphemous. And we were barely able to use the New King James Version for our Bible drills. Uh, that's the one where thee and thou have been changed to you, make it more readable. Uh, it, even that was borderline. But at some point in my life, I found out that the Bible wasn't originally written in King James English. Uh, it was written in Hebrew and Greek. And then even before the King James Version was translated in the early 1600s, there was a version called the Geneva Bible, which had been a product of uh, William Whittingham and other scholars in Switzerland during the time of John Calvin. Even before that, William Tyndale had produced a translation in English and was executed as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. Even further back, in the 1300s, John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, and I say it, had translated the Bible from Latin to what was called Middle English. Uh, it was the common vernacular of the time. He was also deemed a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church. All that to say this, Though I once only knew of the King James Version, I came across information that challenged my understanding and changed my perspective. And now I study the scriptures in Hebrew and Greek. I read them in various translations. I preach from the English Standard Version, which was first published in 2008, so a fairly recent translation. 
And the thing I was so sure of at one point in my life, the thing I was raised to believe, turned out to be a big misunderstanding. And I'm not saying that King James Version is evil, uh, represents the futile ways that Peter is talking to. I'm not saying any of that, but I am making a point about how a different perspective can change our lives. It all depends on how willing we are to challenge our preconceived notions, our prejudices, our sense of certainty. If we let the Holy Spirit have a free hand in our minds and hearts, there will be changes in our lives. And if there aren't changes in our lives, if we are the same person now that we have always been, if we look back and don't see some differences in who we are now as opposed to who we were then, that's a sure sign that we haven't let the Spirit work in us. That our faith is little more than sentimentality and nostalgia for a way of life that seems comfortable to us. We can't possibly be following Jesus if we aren't moving. Jesus was invariably moving toward the cross. He knew what would happen if he said and did the things he said and did, but he continued saying and doing them because he trusted in the Father's will. He knew that teaching people about a better way, that the way of the kingdom of God would lead to conflict and persecution. He knew there would be suffering for him and his followers. Still, he trusted the Father and leaned into everything that came his way, including the pain and suffering. Peter focused on this by saying that those who trust in Jesus are ransomed from their futile, purposeless lives by the precious blood of Christ, who is like a lamb without blemish or spot. The Greeks and Romans both had sacrificial systems, and these Gentile believers would have understood what a sacrifice is. But Peter was not talking about Greco-Roman sacrifices. He was once again referring to the story of the Exodus and the lamb the children of Israel sacrificed at Passover. The lamb whose blood was put on each doorpost and then the lintel of each dwelling. The lamb whose blood would ensure that death would pass over the people of God. The lamb that became the last meal these people would ever have as slaves in Egypt. See, this became the very basis of the sacrificial system in Israel. And it carried forward throughout their time as a nation, but it pointed to something more. It pointed to a time when God's anointed one would come and would show us all a new and better way by laying down his life instead of resorting to the world's way of using wealth and power and fame to control everyone. That's not how Jesus did things. And it shouldn't be how his followers do things either. Just as he laid down his life for us, we should be laying down our lives for the sake of others. This is how we have been ransomed from our futile ways. And this is how we purify our souls. Now, the wording in the English there makes it sound as though we purify our own souls by being obedient. But we know that isn't the case. 
any more than we wash off dirty hands by installing a faucet. In the Greek, there is a preposition in this sentence that sort of sheds a bit of light on the matter. The word is en, E-N, and it means among or within. And the idea Peter put forward here is that the will and way of the Lord are sort of like a flowing stream that's always flowing. We don't do the purifying ourselves. We just get in the stream, and it does the work. Sort of like placing our dirty hands under a faucet and letting the water rinse away the dirt. Obedience to the truth is the stream. It's always flowing. If we stay in it, it will lead us to a sincere brotherly love that comes from a heart that's been washed clean. Rounding out this point, Peter mentioned perishable and imperishable seed, which sounds a lot like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 when talking about our hope in the resurrection. It sort of seems as if maybe Peter and Paul spent a bit of time together in Rome before their deaths. But the point is that the imperishable seed from which we have been born again is the resurrection of Jesus. Because he was resurrected, we will be too. Peter supported this idea by paraphrasing Isaiah 46 through 8, and then connecting the dots between the word of the Lord and the good news that these people had received and placed their trust in as followers and disciples of Christ. If we've done that, we have the same imperishable seed in us, the same resurrection hope, the same new life. So even though we all know that if the Lord holds off on returning long enough, we will each experience death, we also know that death does not have the final word. Peter was just getting warmed up here, but we can already see where he's coming from and where he's going. The foundation he built is on the same foundation we now have because we too have been involved and invited in the story of God's people. And our hope is the same hope these first century believers had as they faced the persecution that they faced. Which means that Peter's challenge to them is also our challenge today, whatever it is we may face. Remember the kintsugi? The way broken pottery can be made not only useful but beautiful? This is the basic idea that we arrive at from what Peter said in these verses. All of us are broken in some way. All of us have inherited feudal ways from our family and from our upbringing that we've carried with us all our lives. But because of Jesus, we have a purpose and a new inheritance. The Holy Spirit is piecing our broken parts back together filling the cracks, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, making us not only useful, but beautiful, and preparing our minds for the things that we have been called to do here in this place. Will you pray with me?